Hey everyone, this is a special bonus episode of the Bitey and the Dog that is a bit off-season for the show since I typically launch each season at the beginning of each summer, but I couldn't resist when my friend Helen St. Pierre wanted to talk about old senior dogs, which is a topic that isn't talked about enough. Helen runs Old Dogs Go to Helen, a nonprofit organization that cares for senior or hospice dogs and all the considerations that go into running such a wonderful cause. We chat about their care and behavior considerations, including aggression or a lack thereof. But one of the highlights of this episode for me was learning what Helen does to navigate the emotions of saying goodbye to the dogs in our care. And I think you're going to enjoy this show. Hey guys, I'm here with a really good friend and colleague, Helen St. Pierre, who's the owner and operator of No Monkey Business Dog Training, LLC, based in Concord, New Hampshire, with two state-of-the-art facilities. One I just got to visit. I went out to see Helen uh, just a few weeks ago, so it was a real pleasure to see her new facility. Uh, she was gracious enough. One of the, really, She really is one of the kindest, most gracious trainers I know. She, uh, she had me up at her other facility many years ago. This is before I even jumped into aggression work and I was looking at opening my own facility. So uh, she's shown me two of our facilities, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> she is a certified dog behavior consultant, uh, certified professional dog trainer, knowledge and skills assessed, and an operation socialization certified trainer. Helen has been training dogs for over 20 years. She's a professional member of the Association of Pet Dog Trainers, a certified member of the IWABC, and a member of the Pet Professional Guild. Helen is also a licensed dogs and Starks educator and a licensed dogs and toddlers educator. Uh, she recently spoke with Jen Fryuk at the Aggression in Dogs conference and has done a webinar for me and runs Old Dogs Go to Helen, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, super awesome play on words as well. Love the name of the organization. So welcome to the show, Helen. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here, especially talking about old dogs, which I could talk about all day. Yeah. So, so what got you into that? You know, like of all the things you could focus on with your big, you're running businesses, you got a family, you've got a lot on your plate. And then all of a sudden now you have eight senior dogs in your home. So what got <laughs> you into this in the first place? Well, to be fair, I've always done it. Um, you know, my, my background and beginning of my work in with dogs was with the shelter. I started uh, in shelter work before I was training dogs. So I've always had shelter dogs sort of coming in and out of my home like a revolving door. And it was when I lost my old dog who was 14, 15, I mean, he was right at 15, uh, Merlin. Um, when he passed, I realized how much I loved having the presence of an old dog in the house. It really just set the tone for even the younger dogs. And right after he passed, right around the same time, a, a very small, bald stinky dog, which is right up my alley, came into <laughs> came into our lives and I started to rehab him. And he didn't last very long. He was only with us for about a year. He actually ended up having kidney failure and all of that stuff. But it sort of set the tone and I started to realize like there was a really big need for some of these old hospice failing dogs that needed a soft place to land. And I started taking on one at a time, sometimes up to two at a time. And one of the larger cases that I took on uh, was a dog that we called Jupiter. He was a huge, intact bull mastiff mix. And he was 
had a, a heart, enlarged heart, skin disease. I mean, you name it, there was something wrong with this dog. And his medication was costing around $500 a week. And all of my followers for No Monkey Business reached out and really wanted to help with his care. So I said, you know, if you want to participate, you know, I, I was doing this without asking for any help. It's just part of what I wanted to do. Um, but people were really being adamant, like, look, I'd love to contribute to the costs. Where can I send this? So I started an old dogs fund on PayPal. And I was amazed at how many people really wanted to help contribute to the costs for these dogs, but didn't want to actually do some of the work, which is understandable because it's it's a lot of work. And after Jupiter passed, you know, I sort of developed this reputation in the area for, well, that's the lady that will take the stinky dying, you know, dog with the tongue hanging out that can't see and walks into walls, like call Helen. So I started to just accumulate these dogs and uh, I created Old Dogs Go to Helen, but who was a charitable foundation, went through, started the process of becoming a 501c3. And uh, one of my clients for No Monkey Business is actually a wonderful attorney, and he offered to do my 501c3 pro bono for me because of the work that the, he knew that I was doing. And it took about a year and we finally got that going and squared away. So it kind of, it's just like with all of us in the dog world, you know, we we start something, we don't realize that it, we're going down that path until we're way already down the path. And we're like, oh yeah, wow, <laughs> this is how that happened. And now, now that I'm a 501c3, we just bought this house. So we have this whole area, uh, basically a sanctuary. And, you know, that's what I'm doing. I'm just taking care of a lot of these are, well, all of them are hospice, extreme special needs medical cases. And I love it. That's really awesome because, you know, the listeners can't see what I'm seeing behind you right now, but I can kind of describe <laughs> it. It's like this, it's like this cozy cabin in the woods kind of feel vibe with the fireplace and all these senior dogs just laying around and enjoying just life with you behind them. Yeah. Yep. So, so how does your family feel about this? Do they kind of say, oh boy, mom or your kids are like, oh, mom's going to get another dog or <laughs> things like that. Or your husband, what, what's, well, the, what's the yes. vibe there? I mean, you know, after we, we, before Jupiter, you know, after we had a dog named um, Sarge, who was a giant pit bull, who was very old. And, um, you know, we used to have to carry him up and down the stairs. And and after Sarge passed, my husband was like, Holly, you know, the next one that we take, could we take in a small hospice dog? So, I, you know, if we have to lift him. And I was like, sure. And then the next dog, of course, was this 100-pound bull mastiff, <laughs> Jupiter. <laughs> and they've kind of just gotten into the, the idea that, like, look, if these dogs come in and they need us, we're just going to help. Um, the kickback that I've heard from a lot of people in, in senior and hospice dog adoption is the worry about the kids being involved. And, you know, I know you've heard me speak about it and write about it before, but uh, doing senior and hospice rescue with dogs has been one of the greatest things I could have done as a parent. It has taught so much empathy and compassion and sacrifice to the kids. It's opened their mind to the understanding of what death is and that death is not something that we have to not talk about or skirt around or, you know, try to prevent. It's something that is just a part of their lives. And as a result, you know, I've got these kids that are, you know, incredibly resilient and so compassionate for it. And um, that's something that I really wish was discussed more is talking to kids about this and utilizing senior and hospice work with with kids um, and having them understand what it is. It, it creates a, a lifelong respect for what, you know, life is and what it isn't. 
I, it's such a valuable lesson. I, I can imagine how that's really helped them grow and see the journey of life, really. I mean, it's something that even adults can learn from, right? And, and that yes. kind of considering, you know, what outcomes for a senior dog there might be. So, you know, you see a lot of these, I see sometimes, and it breaks your heart, you know, you see like a senior dog on social media or something like that, or like a TikTok video of a senior dog being given up or surrendered at a shelter that's like 14 or 15 and has health issues. And, you know, you it kind of breaks your heart. Like you think in your mind, why would somebody do that? But there's often a lot of valid reasons sometimes. So, so you want to talk us through that a little bit? You know, why do people give up on an old dog? Yeah, you know, we get, you get all kinds of responses when I'll post, you know, just got this 16-year-old dog or this 18-year-old dog, you know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, even the, the 13 or the 14-year-olds, you know, some people, I, I would never give up my dog and I would never... There are always sometimes valid reasons for some people. I mean, a lot of the time it's the owners have passed. So these senior dogs were with seniors and those senior humans have passed on and the family doesn't have the resources or they're not in the area to care for the dog. Sometimes it is the dog has too many medical issues for the humans to be able to deal with appropriately. There is a very valid and realistic point that some people cannot handle the care and the decision-making that sometimes needs to happen. I found that with a lot of younger people that have, this is their first dog, they've never had a dog that is now incontinent or has a hard time walking and they really don't know how to handle it or aren't financially prepared to be able to provide some of the things that the dog now needs and that kind of thing. And in many cases, those are all very valid reasons. And then, of course, you do get the other side of it where we see a lot of dogs that are just, they're no longer convenient, so the dog is cast aside. And are there those stories? Yes. And I have some of those too here, but we also have some that are, for no fault of their own, those humans had to make that decision. And and in the end, I always say to the kids and to my husband, it really doesn't matter. They're here now. So we're just going to give them the best sunset we can. And I imagine as some of the listeners are um, hearing you speak about this, that it might seem like a romantic thing to do too, like a goal of, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. I want to I want to do the same thing and, and take in these senior dogs and give them a happy home. Because, uh, you know, again, our hearts go out to these dogs, but there's, as you mentioned, some costs involved as well as some skill involved because you have a background in, in the veterinary industry, right? So um, you are able to administer medications and do some of these things. Can you talk more about that as well? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it- it is not glamorous. There is nothing glamorous about senior and hospice dog rescue. And one of the things that we we see a lot, you know, I'll post these dogs that this dog just arrived and people are like, oh, I'd, I'd love to adopt him. And you think, you know, because they see this cute picture. But the reality is, is that we do more laundry every day from washing pee pads or, you know, accidents than, you know, we're, we're actually creating a volunteer program just for people to come do laundry for us because my washing machine and dryer is going to like <laughs> it's going to quit very soon because I can't keep up. But, you know, it's not glamorous. There is a lot of cleanup. There's a lot of worrying. There's a lot of medications and staying on top of things. And I cannot even tell you the amount of bills that you do in, in veterinary care, you know, just in maintaining some of these dogs, not even just diagnostic work or treatment, just in maintaining. So Peanut, this little chihuahua that we got yesterday, he's in heart failure. He has a vascular valve that's not closing properly and he's got a chronic cough. So you can barely hear yourself think sometimes, you know, it's 
it seemed like, again, from the outside, people love to look at the pictures. But if they saw, like if I had one of those time cameras that showed you what I'm doing moving around, I don't really sit down much. I'm constantly ch- taking care and caring for them. But it's it. I love it because I love doing it. But it's it's certainly not for the faint of heart. You should totally do that with the camera following you around because <laughs> not only would it be cool to see what you do with the old dogs, but everything else you've got going on in your life, I think would yes. be very uh, inspiring. <laughs> so, so kind of shifting gears a little bit here is the part where you have to let them go um, mm. and making those decisions and, and kind of dealing with that. You know, emotionally, I'm sure that's very tough. I know I would be like falling if, if I've got a senior dog. I mean, it must be tough, tough every single time. But how do you, how do you work through that? And how do you make the decisions? Well, you know, I've, prior to even doing any of this, like I said, I, my beginning work was in shelters. I started at Little Plata County Humane Society in Durango, Colorado, and we had a crematorium on site. We did euthanasias for space. I mean, I was introduced to euthanasia and death at a very, very young age in my training career and working with dogs um, because we would euthanize perfectly healthy dogs just because we ran out of space. So I was very aware when I was going into this work of what euthanasia looked like. I'd euthanized my own dogs prior for age and that kind of thing. And, you know, you hear the term quality of life all the time. But what I've really become very adamant about talking about is something called quality of death. And I think our society, especially in our culture and society, which, you know, I know you've done so much um, work in talking to people about what our society is doing to dogs in terms of just healthy young dogs or our expectations. But our the same thing is our expectations and understanding of what death is and what end of life should look like. And we don't talk about it enough, what quality of death is. Well, you know, death, it seems like such a scary final thing. And it is final, but it doesn't have to be scary and it can be celebrated and it can be done in a really kind, peaceful, non-emergency, non-painful way. And that's what I really strive for with these dogs. Now, that's not to say, you know, I will get a dog that someone will tell me, you know, the rescue or the person will say, you know, I know he doesn't have long. I know he doesn't have long. He might only have a couple of weeks. And I'll take him and I'll be like, I know this dog only has a couple of weeks. And then 24 hours after having this dog, I'm like, this dog can never die, you know, because I love them so much. Like I get super attached. But what I've realized is that I cannot hold on for me. I have to let them go for them. It's not about having them go on their worst day. That's what I've really learned is that a lot of these dogs, they have chronic illnesses. Well, not all all of these dogs have chronic illnesses or ailments or age, and they're never going to get better. This is not something that's going to improve. It might plateau. I might have them feel better than they did when they first came and they weren't on any medicine, but they're never going to go back to puppyhood. So I have to make those decisions for that dog when they tell me, right? And not and not be selfish about it. But also when I'm realizing that they're on that downward curve now, they're on that downward spiral. And I owe it to them to not just give them a good end of life, but also a really good death and have them be cognizant and aware and have a, a great last day before that happens. And that gives me a lot more... I'm not going to say I don't mourn their loss or feel sad when they go, but it gives me a lot more peace in knowing that I've given them that rather than I shouldn't have waited, you know, that type of regret that some people have felt. Mm, That's a a really 
great way of putting it in the sense of when you say quality of death in the sense of being able to cope with that because i think it's a struggle for for many of us when we see an animal passing regardless of the reason and it's interesting to me you know I, I, as you were speaking you you were reminding me of some other people i know that face this decision making process often you know trish mcmillan is one yeah and how from an emotional standpoint you know i'm always asking what's the secret <laughs> you know what's the secret when when i see that in somebody somebody that experiences or sees death often or somebody that works in hospice for instance how do they cope with that what are their strategies and so it's an interesting component because i don't i don't think i have that part of that i don't know what to call it sort of that aspect that you guys have that it's very powerful it's because i don't see it often because working in a care industry or a care profession, we care a lot, right? And so the emotions are just going to naturally come along with it. And so to see that, it's interesting. I'm always kind of digging into what is that secret. And so I, I really appreciate you talking about the quality of death aspect of it because it's, uh, it's yeah. important to talk There's, about. There is no secret. I mean, there are some, and I, I will be totally honest with you, there are some that when we go for that final appointment, I feel complete relief for that dog. You know, that dog has been struggling or suffering. Uh, and then there are some that really are harder for me because I wish that I had had more time with them or, you know, there, there's no real secret. It, it's just for some reason, I have a, a more of a built-in resiliency than others. But that being said, something that I hear a lot in my work is, oh, I could never do that. My, uh, my heart would just break too easily. And the reality is, is it doesn't mean that my heart doesn't break doing this. It just means that I see that there is this need for these dogs to have somebody that is willing to do that and I'm willing to do it for them. But it doesn't mean that, like like even with Trish, like the, we're not feeling that stuff too. We just are, mm. I'm better at, I don't know, pushing it aside to care for the animal in that moment. Mm. You need to write a book about it. <laughs> because <laughs> I, again, I, I think it's it's such valuable information for, for those of us out there that do struggle with end of life decisions and with death. It's, uh, I think there's much more to be learned from seeing yeah. and, and also, you know, you know, I know you, but a lot of listeners may not know your lifestyle and what you do, you know, the amount of that you have on your plate, you know, running those the two locations, full-time business, parent, you know, wife, you've got so much going on, and yet you still have this. And then the component of what we were just talking about, you know, providing a good end of life for these dogs. It just it's truly remarkable when you think about it in terms of the amount of stressors we can face in our lives and yeah. what you're doing. They they shift and help me so much in my regular work too, because they keep me very, very humble and they keep me constantly aware of how we take so much for granted and, you know, how we have to remember that all of our lives, it, you know, everything is just a phase, it, you know, it's just a phase. And so when people are coming at me and they have these questions about their puppies or their younger dogs or all of that, it, you know, in my mind, I'm obviously helping them with those issues, but I also am very cognizant and always aware of like, this is a phase you will, you're going to come to other. And I have that phase in my house. I have all the phases in my house. I have puppies, but I have all the way up to, you know, their last weeks or months. And keeping that fresh in my mind has made me much more acutely aware of, of helping clients get perspective sometimes on things. It's really not that big of a deal. It's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about that helping aspect as well. Mm -hmm. 
Hey everyone, if you are interested in hearing more about applicable and immediate steps you can use with your own dog, or in your cases, don't forget about the subscription series called Help for Dogs with Aggression, which is an additional format to this podcast where I walk you through a variety of aggression issues and how to solve them. You'll find a little subscribe button on Apple Podcasts where the bitey end of the dog is listed, or a link in the show notes to subscribe on Supercast. Your support of the show is very much appreciated. Please also consider supporting Helen's cause by heading over to olddogsgotohelen.com and clicking on the donate button. You'll be supporting a wonderful organization and the senior dogs will thank you for it. All right, we're back with Helen and we're going to jump now into how can we help some of these older dogs? You know, what are some of the aspects you need to consider with regards to, you know, just general daily care or just what are some of your insights there? Well, you know, uh, and I've talked to you about this before, but we focus so much on dog I hate the word ownership, but guardianship, whatever you want to call it, on the first like three to four years of life. Or, you know, we we get a puppy, we focus on puppyhood, we have adolescence, and then we are it really into like, well, what am I going to do with this dog? Do I want to do sports? Do I want to do and all of that stops when we hit, you know, seniorhood. It's like we those resources and understanding of what their needs might be really does shift. And, you know, what defines a senior is a conversation for another day in terms of is it when they're seven? Was it when they're 12? But as the dog ages, as the dog starts to enter what I call the sunset of their lives, right? They're they're no longer young and spry. There are a lot of considerations that I think people need to have an understanding of. You know, one of the biggest things that I've noticed in my work with senior dogs is just how routines shift. I mean, the routines for my young dogs is like, okay, we eat here, we do this, and they just sort of like, we go with it and they go with it. With senior dogs, routines are very different. You know, I might feed my senior dog at nine o'clock at night, whereas, you know, as a young puppy, they would have eaten their whole meal by six o'clock. But for some of these senior dogs, I have to offer them dinner at totally different periods of time because it's based off of how they're feeling or perceiving that day. Um, And then things like environmental changes, you know, going from being able to do all the stairs to, okay, we're getting to that point now where I might need to have one level living right? Which we talk about even with humans was they get to a certain age, like moving to one level living. And, you know, if we start considering that stuff early and we start making those plans ahead of time, we can defeat a lot of anxiety for not just the the guardian, the person caring for the senior dog, but the senior dog itself. Because I see so many senior dogs have such anxiety that they are now no longer physically able to do what they used to be able to do, um, like go upstairs. And they end up hurting themselves. And then that pain then perpetuates the issue. And if we start making these preparations ahead of time and saying, well, I've got a Mastiff and, you know, he's going to be eight. And, I, you know, we have a set of stairs. Maybe I need to start having him get used to lower one level living now before he falls or something happens. I think we can alleviate a lot of this. But, you know, it's really just senior dogs, hospice dogs, it's fly by the seat of your pants a lot of the time. It is, you know, some of them love their routine, but then the next day they may completely go off that routine and you're going to have to shift your whole day around what might work for them in those moments, which is especially true for some of the dogs that I deal with in renal failure or that have a chronic medical condition because it's very much dependent on their, how they physically are feeling that day. Mm. 
Do you see when one of the seniors, many seniors that come to your home passes on, do you see the other dogs grieve sometimes? And how do you, how do you cope with that or deal with that? That is such a great question. In, in my experience, yes, but mainly with dogs, senior couples that have come in. So when I've had mm. two bonded seniors come in, um, my last one was a Pomeranian and a, a little Shih Tzu mix, you know, Muffin and, and Scuffy. And Muffin came to me extremely emaciated and in very bad end-stage renal failure. And she only had like two weeks with us, but Scuffy was – he was hospice, but he wasn't as bad. When she passed – he absolutely felt that loss, but it's one of the reasons that I am so adamant about having multi-senior dogs at this point, multi-hospice senior dogs, because they bolster each other. I think that that actually really does improve their quality of life by having multiple ones so that when uh, there is a loss, it's not as profound. They they definitely pick up on it just like I do. You know, I walked in here because I, I we lost um, – snuggles on on Monday. She was a 16-year-old Pekingese and she was in renal failure. You know, I walk in and I'm like, oh, I miss snuggles. But I, I don't have time to really worry and focus on because I've, I've got to shuffle everybody outside to get their dinner. In. <laughs> so I think they definitely pick up on it. It's profound in some cases, but it doesn't play as role as much here with the multiples as it would if they were by themselves. So Along those lines now uh, of how they're interacting with each other, let's talk a little bit more about behavior and what you see there. When I met up with you a few weeks ago, we were kind of joking about some of their interactions. I thought it was actually quite comical the way you were describing it. So tell us more about like like kind of the daily routine between these dogs, you know, if it's their conversations with each other, how they kind of <laughs> behave around each other. Because when you think about it, eight dogs in a home – a lot of the listeners, I'm sure, are like they can they have problems with two dogs sometimes in the home, but senior right. dogs are a little different, right? Yes. Well, it levels the playing field, right? Because, you know, if you combined all of them together, you'd have one normal dog. But, you know, there's one with three legs. This one's blind. This one's kidneys don't work. This one's heart doesn't work. And they're all just, just like puppies. When puppies are born, they're completely vulnerable, even playing field, right? They don't have any skills or anything that's that, you know, puts one against the other, other than maybe size and some strength. But same thing with senior dogs. It's just that level playing field, especially when we talk about like the super seniors or the hospice. So it's kind of like watching whales. Like they still have plenty of interactions with each other, but everything is slowed down. And they're especially not as apt to get into scuffles or arguments because they can, some of them can barely walk. Some of them can't see, you know, so everything is very agonistic, very like, I'm just trying to show you that I don't want you to come near me while I'm trying to sleep on this bed. But lots of talking, but not a lot. There's no yelling. Nobody does any real yelling anymore at this stage. But what's really cool is that you'll see they each have their own personalities. And for me, what I love is I'm like, God, you at four years old would have been such a handful, you know, and now here you are at 14, you know, trying to be a handful, but you can't anymore. So, you know, your version of a handful. But when you're dealing with eight senior dogs, like I said, you combine them, you'd have one healthy mischievous dog. But when you combine them like that, it's very slow moving, but it's some fantastic body language to watch too, because they still have all those skills. You know, they just can't practice them as quickly and as fast as they would have been able to when they were young, spry whippersnappers. <laughs> now, would it be safe to say you you 
rarely see true overt aggression in any of these senior dogs that come to you. Absolutely. Yes, it is very, very well. Well, to be fair, though, people who know when they send their dogs to me that I have a they have to be kids, cats and dogs savvy. You know, in order to come here, they have to have that because I'm creating an environment for them. So I'm not taking on dogs that have those issues. But I will tell you that I have taken dogs like um, Mary, this 13-year-old pity. She's heartworm positive. She's an intact female. If she were at four or five years old, I would be much more concerned about her being able to mesh in with everybody, quite frankly. Um, But because of her ailments and her age, she really and she was very grumbly when she got but you you don't see the um the outward aggression and that kind of thing that you would see in other multi-dog households with younger dogs mm. speaking of those younger dogs we often see not often but the dynamic when we go into an intra-household dog dog aggression case where it's sort of newer conflicts between the dogs and there's a younger dog and a senior dog it's often the younger dog sort of picking conflicts with the older dog why do you think that is or in your experience what do you see in those kind of cases well i mean it's kind of like I always tell people you know when you've got a senior dog and you get a puppy or you get a young dog it'd be like me leaving my four-year-old with my 85-year-old grandma and expecting them to sort of like get along and interact well over a period of time. And at some point, my grandmother would get frustrated with my four-year-old and my four-year-old would get really frustrated with my grandmother. And because you're just at different phases of life, you know, senior dogs, like I said, they move a lot slower. So I think that because they're slowed down, their deferment behavior or their when they offer signalings to other dogs the young dogs are used to a lot faster so they don't they don't communicate sometimes the lines of communication can get really badly crossed and then the other thing that i do see a lot for young dogs is young dogs have a hard time learning to defer to the senior dog learning like oh i i need to let you move out of the way i need to move out of the way for you because you can't move very well you didn't mean to bump me while i was eating you just sort of stagger around And so there's this huge learning curve that sometimes has to happen for guardians of these dogs to learn like, well, you've got to teach your younger dog that this is how the old dog moves and it's okay. And he needs to be like cope a little bit better. And we might need to set up the environment for the older dog so that he's not sending those, you know, lines of communication that are getting misconstrued by the younger dog. But it's, we see that a lot, you know, and then the big question I always get is, well, should I just let my old dog tell the puppy off or tell the other dog off? Like, should I wait for them to do that? And my answer is always like, no, no, no. You need to be refereeing and helping your younger dog understand that the old dog is in this stage and teaching that empathy. And I absolutely think that we can teach deferment and empathy to a lot of these young dogs with old dogs the same way we do with kids. Like, no, you can't go jump on grandma's lap, you know, <laughs> and <laughs> while she's laying down in bed, right? But, but I mean, we would do that, right? I would never say to my four-year-old, you know, go ahead, grandma will tell you when it's time to stop. Like, no, 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 we don't do that. And we need to be <laughs> doing that more with these young dogs and seniors too. Yeah. And then sometimes it's it's kind of just a straight management scenario, right? Because yes. the senior dog is, is in either cognitive decline or maybe he's losing their vision or hearing. It's going to be in terms of the amount of time that dog might have left versus the amount of behavior change strategies we might employ. It's most often the easier answer is just let's manage these. Let's give the older dog the space they need and this part of the house or whatever it is. Do, do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, management comes into play 
in so many areas of, of training, but in especially with senior dogs and young dogs. And, you know, even especially when you're talking about big dogs and small dogs, I mean, if you've got a tiny senior chihuahua, even if that senior chihuahua is rather spry and can communicate back, I'm still going to manage that young shepherd puppy pretty. So absolutely management sometimes, especially in that very last few months or weeks, whatever is really, really important for, again, for that quality of life and quality of death of that old dog as well mm. and senior for the sake of uh, description here senior dog as far as the age range i know it's going to differ by breed but what would you set that at if you were to say okay i'm going to classify well, so as senior yeah it's so dependent i mean i've had some dogs of my own that i would have classified as senior by seven you know just from arthritis mm. or you know chronic illness i mean paddington my collie was diagnosed with lupus by five and so by the time he was seven or eight he was in his sunset, you know, versus some dogs that we have that they're, I would, you know, they're seniors. Technically, yes, they're definitely seniors by 11 or 12. But to me, they are in like the early stages of seniorhood. And then, you know, we've got like the super seniors. And I think size and breed definitely plays a role in that. You know, we know a lot of these small dogs tend to just go on and on and on and live forever, which is one of the reasons that many senior dog rescues and sanctuaries are filled with just these tiny little dogs <laughs> with no jaws, you know, that just sort of like continue to hobble around. But it's very variable based on the dog and their physical disease or ailment too. Mm. What's the oldest dog that's come through your program? Uh, 18, 18 and a half. Wow. What yeah. kind of dog was it? He was a uh, Jack Russell. And wow. then the other youngest one I had was a Pomeranian. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And how long were they with you for? Were they with you for like a long time? Because they-, they Yeah. So some or? of these, yeah, some of these stories are harder because, you know, we get the, a lot of the super, super seniors that we get when they are passed to me, I will tell the, the guardian or even the rescue and they're giving them to me. This can go two ways. Sometimes the transition to a new place and a new location and that stress for a dog at that mm. vulnerable of an age can be the beginning of the downward, right? So the 18-year-old Jack Russell, he arrived and he was only with me, I think I think it was over a week, but it wasn't two weeks because he started having massive seizures from the stress. So I had to make that decision for him very quickly. But then Snuggles, the 16-year-old Pekingese that I had, I mean, we had her for five months and she was in renal failure and she did great. You know, it, it really just does depend on the dog. And sometimes it depends on that dog's history. If that dog has been with one person its entire life at, from puppyhood until 18 years old, and then we put, pluck them out and they put them here, I don't take it personally that they look around and they go, yeah, this is nice, but I'd like to go now. <laughs> like, I do not take that personally <laughs> at all. You can't because I completely and totally understand that this, they they look around, they're like, no, I'm ready. I'd rather go. And that's totally mm -hmm. fine. So we're going to talk a little bit more about resources or where people can go to find more information about helping senior dogs. But what about what advice do you have for somebody that's struggling? They've got a senior dog and they, for whatever reason, can't keep the dog. And it's maybe a valid reason. Maybe it's an affordability issue. Maybe it's they're moving. Maybe uh, somebody's family member passed away and now they've got this dog with them and they can't have the dog in wherever they live or so, whatever reason. So 
What's your advice? What's what are the next steps? What can people do besides coming to see you? <laughs> Don't tell them my address, Michael. End up with all of them. Set. But um, I, th- <laughs> I think uh, the the biggest piece of advice I would say would be to find or look for a specialty senior rescue. Okay, there are unfortunately there's only about fifty of us in the U.S. at this time. But if mm-hmm. they go to the website Saving Senior Dogs, they will find all of the rescues everywhere. And a lot of us, even if I can't necessarily take the dog, I may be able to point them in a direction of someone who may be looking for a senior dog that they'd like to give a home to, or we have foster or hospice homes. Look into that resource first before you contact or go to your local shelter. And then the other half of that equation is look at the dog itself in terms of as an individual and ask yourself if going through a rehoming process at that age and if a dog has medical ailments or anything like that is going to be humane for that dog. Or would that dog rather have an amazing last however many days with you, have you go with him and be the last person to say goodbye? And, you know, there is nothing wrong with having that discussion in your brain. It doesn't mean that you're giving up or that you could have, would have, should have. It's it's sometimes that is one of the best things you can do for some of these super seniors rather than have someone like myself have to do it and have the dog looking for you. Mm, that's a very, very important point. And question for you there is, do you know of any resources where people can get assistance in making that kind of decision? Because I'm sure it's very difficult for people to at first make that decision on their own or kind of know the variables of what to look for uh, versus someone that is, is experienced with this. Do you know of anybody that offers consults or um, if there's a s- particular resource for this? Yeah, um, me. So I do a lot of that uh, now okay. as people call me all the time. Um, and I'm giving a workshop on it next month actually called Savoring the Sunset, um, which is how to live with senior dogs and also how to make those decisions, when to make those decisions. I get so many calls for people that don't know their dog was just diagnosed with osteosarcoma or their dog is at this age and they don't know how to navigate these decisions. You know, like I said, saving senior dogs, talking to those of us that are in senior dog rescue, many of us are more than happy to make have those discussions and help you navigate them. The Gray Muzzle Foundation that I'll be doing some talks for next year um, is also a great resource. They have a lot of information on there. But, you know, really, you'd be surprised. A lot of us in senior dog rescue and sanctuary and stuff, like, we're happy to talk to people about it because we would much rather be proactively helping these people than seeing the aftermaths of some of these dogs that are left behind. You know, most veterinarians are very happy to have that conversation. But as we know, the veterinary industry is completely and totally overwhelmed. So they may not have the same amount of time that they used to to have those kinds of conversations. So, I'm hoping over time more resources for that kind of thing will be popping up. Excellent. Excellent. And where can people go to find your site and all the other resources you were just mentioning that you're going to be doing? So my main website is nomonkeybusinessdogtraining.com. The best place to find me is on Facebook. You can just like No Monkey Business Dog Training and you'll see all the shenanigans that go on with not just the old dogs, but the young dogs and the kids and the cats and the tortoise and all the fun stuff, the, you know, the zoo. And then you can like Old Dogs Go to Helen um, on Facebook and my website, olddogsgotohelen.com. 
You can send me an email there. You can see all our fundraising, the stuff that we're doing. And I'll be posting on both of those, the Savoring the Sunset webinar that I'll be doing next month that I'm hoping get more professionals involved as well, because I'd really love to see not just the public, but more professionals learning how to coach people through some of these decisions as well. Excellent. Excellent. So everybody, make sure you check out Savoring the Sunset that's coming up. It should be coming out right about a week after this podcast. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, I think it'd be right around that time. And I'll be sure to add a link in the show notes for this episode as well. And please, please consider donating to Old Dogs Go to Hell. And it really, she's just got such an amazing organization here. I mean, who who can't not think this is such a good thing? So uh, please consider that. You can find the fundraising link on her website. Helen, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm sure we will talk again in the future. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks for joining me for the bitey end of the dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to aggressivedog.com or the looseleashacademy.com for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences, all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues. And don't forget, the Aggression in Dogs Conference will be happening from October 22nd to 24th with 12 amazing speakers, all streaming from a television studio in Chicago. It's going to be a truly unique event in 2021.